Well, we welcome you again to this gathering of Old Oak Bible Church. We've come to the main portion of our time when we worship God by expounding his word, seeing who he is there, and responding to his word by living for him in all of our lives. Today, we're going to talk about kicking people out of church. (laughs) Sounds like a very bright and cheery subject, doesn't it? I wonder if that's what you came to hear this morning. I don't know if that quite matches the welcoming tone we try to have each week. Well, kicking people out of church, or, or put better, church discipline, doesn't always sit well with us. You know, cases of church discipline will even occasionally make it into the newspapers as the outside world is shocked that Christians would ever do such a thing. Now, never mind that every other organization and institution has standards for belonging that if not met can lead to removal from the group. Never mind that that's in place for everybody else. Even still, church discipline seems the opposite of what's expected for Christians. As one author puts it, church discipline feels like salvation's evil twin. You know, salvation brings people in. Discipline kicks people out. Now, our job as Christians is to bring sinners to Jesus. After all, that's what he told us to do. So why would anybody talk about kicking people out? Well, it's subjects like this one that remind us why we preach through books of the Bible. Because on our own, if it was up to us, we might skip passages like 1 Corinthians 5. But this is simply the next one up. And we believe that all scripture comes from God. Difficult subjects like this, like church discipline, remind us also that our ways are not God's ways. God's love is different from our love. His love is wiser than our own. His love is holier than our own. And so we trust that the command to deal with sin in the church via church discipline comes from the same God who took on flesh and died for sinners in the church. Though it's hard to see, we trust that God gave this for a reason. And this reason is for our good and his glory. So with that posture in place of sort of acknowledging the difficulty of this topic, as well as just trusting God in his goodness and wisdom, let's read 1 Corinthians 5. You can find it in your Bible or uh, print it in the bulletin. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. This is God's word. The situation Paul describes in this chapter is shocking. A guy in the church was having an affair with his mother-in-law. Now, though that exact situation may not arise in every local church, I hope it doesn't, there is a main principle that lies underneath Paul's response and his instruction to the Corinthians here. It's printed in your bulletin, main point for our time. It says, we, as a local church of Christ, we should take sin seriously enough to be willing to take difficult steps to keep us from it. We should take sin seriously enough to be willing to take difficult steps to keep us from it. So as we make our way through this passage, we'll see what these steps look like, why we would take them. We'll break down our passage in three parts. First, Paul's presentation. Next, his foundation, and finally, his clarification. So first, Paul's presentation. We'll begin by honing in on verses 1 to 5. Paul presents the situation, the Corinthians' response to it, his instructions for what they should do instead of how they are responding, and why they should do it. He presents a lot right off the bat. So diving into verse 1, as he discusses their situation here, we can see his transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5 in that little word, actually. At the end of chapter 4, he told them that as their father in the faith, he was getting ready to come home and check on the order of the house. He's saying, they better get the house in order or else I'm going to do it for you. And here he just dives into further just the mess that the, the Corinthian household is in. Actually, there's reported sexual immorality among you. Now, reported, he probably heard this, if we remember from chapter 1, way back several weeks ago. He probably heard this from a delegation called Chloe's people who told, them, who told Paul about what was going on in Corinth. And they reported to Paul about sexual immorality. And this sounds like a very Bible way to put this. The word for sexual immorality, you may know, is porneia which you may have guessed is where we get our word pornography from. Sexual immorality, this word here, it's a very general, broad term. It's sort of like a catch-all. It refers to all prohibited sexual activity. But Paul's going to specify what this particular sexual immorality was. First, you see, this sexual immorality was among them. It seems to come up every week with 1 Corinthians. The situation Paul's about to talk about was going on among Christians. Among Christians in a church. 
The people who have been freed from their sin through Jesus' death. The people who have been given the Holy Spirit for newness of life to walk after Jesus. Those people put up with this sin. That should be shocking. So here's another reminder, just as we need it every single week. We are not beyond this. We just aren't. Crazy stuff still goes on among Christians. Anybody who's been here long enough can probably testify to that. Crazy stuff still goes on among Christians. This reminds us, too, that appearances among people at church, again, don't always tell the whole story. Don't tell the whole story of the purity of our lives. Well, brothers and sisters, perhaps your fellow church members would be shocked to know what you do when no one's watching. Sexual immorality, what was it about? Well, it was among them. He continues to describe it. Second, he says, it is of a kind that not even the pagans tolerate. It's just the shocking situation gets even more shocking. When we remember what the city of Corinth was like, it was, if we could have a modern analogy, like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. This was an anything-goes, sexually liberated society. So it would take something very egregious to be out of bounds for the non-Christians in the city of Corinth. But something was that egregious that was going on in the church there. So we'll say this again later on as we, in this passage. But here's a reminder again. Our individual sin is not a private matter. It, what I mean is your individual sin has effects on the people around you. And in particular, for Christians, it has effects on your church. So whatever sin Paul's talking about here, think of how it would affect their entire church's witness to the people in their city, to the non-Christians around them. Think about it. Why would the non-Christians around them be compelled with the gospel if the Christians they know put up with sin that they don't even put up with. So what exactly was this sexual immorality that was among them that not even the pagans tolerated? Here we get into specifics. Paul said that a man had his father's wife. He actually says a man has his father's wife. In the Greek, this is the present tense. It communicates that this was something that was ongoing. It was a continual situation. This man was having an ongoing affair with his mother, with his stepmother. So not only did the society around them condemn this kind of incestuous relationship, but the rest of the Bible does as well. Both the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy prohibit this exact scenario of a man sleeping with his stepmother. So this is what's going on. This is the gist of the situation. And Paul moves next to present their response to this situation. Verse 2. They are arrogant. Now, it wouldn't make much sense to brag about someone committing sin that their culture around them found disgusting. What Paul likely means here is that they were arrogant despite this sin going on in their church. So how could this work? How could they still boast about how great they are when this was going on? How could they do that? Well, to keep their high view of themselves, they'd have to find a way to ignore this sin. 
Theta would have to find a way to sweep it under the rug. They would have to find a way just not to address it. There's a lot of reasons we could do this, right? Why we would ignore the sin in our lives or even the sin in, a sin in our own church. We just say it's uncomfortable to talk about. We don't want to rock the boat of the peace and, and the good vibe of the church, so we, don't, we just don't talk about that. Uh, we don't want to come across as being judgmental, so we avoid it. For the Corinthians, you think about their motives in, in not addressing this sin. For them, it could have been that this man who did this or was doing this, that this man was influential in the church and prominent in the community. Remember that these were a people who valued the cultural accolades around them. They valued success in the world. And so perhaps this man could give them cultural accolades and success. And so they don't, they don't address the wrong stuff he's doing. So instead of remaining in their, in their arrogance and remaining ignoring their ongoing sin, Paul says instead of that, they need to mourn the situation. It's a heart issue, right? It begins in their heart. It begins with their stance against sin. They need to see sin not through the lens of self-interest. They need to start seeing sin through the lens of how God sees it. That's all of us. We need to love what God loves, mourn over what God mourns over. And like Paul says in another place, their mourning or their sorrow should lead to repentance. It should lead to action. In this case, their mourning or sorrow should lead to the action of removing this man from among them. This man's sin was so clear, so serious, that they needed to take action immediately. They needed to move right to the end of the process that Jesus describes in Matthew 18. They needed to remove this man from among them. That's just the first part of Paul's presentation. If you're looking at it, what's printed in the bulletin, it's like the first paragraph. And we're, he's going to expand on this presentation in verses 3 to 5. Before we go into that, though, we should clarify some things. Because there are certain things that need to be in place in order for this action to be possible. In order for removing this man actually to work. There needs to be certain things in place for this to make sense. Now, the most basic level, what we could take for granted, is that behind this instruction of removing this man from among them is the understanding that Christians should live differently. That's maybe the unspoken, implied understanding behind this instruction. Christians should live differently. Now, we know, all the, we know the nuance with this, right? If, you, if you've been a Christian for some time. This is not to say that we live without sin. But we do have a new stance toward our sin. We are no longer at peace with our sin. We seek to walk away from it in what's called ongoing repentance. This man here did not have that stance. This man was not turning from his sin, but persisted in his sin. So what needs to be in place? What's behind all this instruction that makes it work, that makes it possible? Removing this man from among them is possible only because this man committed a visible and clear sin. So for instance, if somebody harbors pride in their heart, it's tough to discipline 
to use church discipline on them, unless that pride shows up in a very specific way, in a very clear and visible way. So this man partook in a clear and visible sin. Removing this man from among them, Paul's instruction, it's possible only if there was some awareness on the Corinthians' behalf and on this man's behalf that he was currently a part of them. How would they remove this man if they never brought him in? The back door of church discipline becomes very difficult without the front door of church membership. It's just a formal recognition that an individual Christian is a part of the church fellowship. So you see, I bet this man did everything that the other Christians in Corinth did. Bet he did everything that they did. He, he probably showed up regularly. He probably participated in worship. Probably gave money. Hey, maybe he served on the welcome team. I don't know. He probably thought everything about his life was fine. In large part because the Christians around him didn't say anything about what he was doing. So what Paul says here is that they need to make known to this man that the way he lived was not okay. It was evidence that he did not believe in Jesus because belief in Jesus should change our stance against sin. So Paul continues. We'll go into the second paragraph. Continues his presentation, verse 3. And here he gives an initial reason for why they should take this action. Even though Paul's not with them in person, he says that this action has his backing. As an apostle, as the guy who originally brought them the gospel, this is what he tells them to do. But notice, even though this action has Paul's backing, the Corinthians themselves are the ones who finally have to take this action, not Paul. It's the Corinthians who have to do this. So we keep in mind Jesus' instructions, again, about confronting someone in the church who sinned against us in Matthew 18. The very final stage in his instruction is an action from the entire church. Jesus gave the power of affirming someone's, a, a person's profession of faith in him to the entire church. So with Paul's backing and with the authority given to them by Jesus, they are to take action when they gather. That's what Paul is saying. We're going to wrap up Paul's presentation soon. He's got one more verse to cover. And we'll see him in verse 5 just expand further on what it means to remove an individual from among them. But before we go into verse 5, we, we should think about something for a second. If this action of removing a person from among them comes from the entire church. Each one of us should ask then, how do I do my job well? If this is, if this is the responsibility of everybody here, how do I do my part and do my job well? Or maybe his first reaction is like, it's kind of scary, intimidating. Church discipline? I mean, it's going to be, remain scary and, dis, and intimidating no matter what. But church discipline will be more realistic, more doable, if we do positive work on the front end of it. Positive work before we ever get to the point of removing somebody from church fellowship. This positive work that needs to be in place before church discipline includes 
frankly, just having meaningful relationships. Developing and cultivating meaningful relationships with people who are among us at church. Relationships where we know one another's stories, where we know one another's families, one another's joys and sorrows. We talk about spiritual matters. We pray with one another. See, tough conversations are less tough when there is a loving relationship already in place. And that relationship includes permission to speak hard truths into each other's lives. So let's wrap up his presentation. As a church, Paul says in verse 5, they are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If we wanted Paul to turn down the temperature at all, he does not here. We said whatever this means, you know, delivering to Satan, destruction of the flesh, and we're going to get to that. We have to keep in mind the purpose behind it, the very end of this statement. The intention and the hope behind the action of removal is not to punish the person, put them down and say, yes, this is what I told you. The intention, the hope behind this action is to restore the person. It's an intention and hope of grace, love, mercy. So we do a short-term, difficult action of removing our affirmation of a person's profession of faith in Jesus. We do that difficult, short-term action for the hope of a long-term, that in the long-term, this person will come back to Christ. So, for instance, like, take analogy of any kind of medicine. You do the Mary Poppins deal. The spoonful of medicine is going to taste gross. But you got to take it. Just think of what it would be without it. If you dislocate a shoulder, it's going to remain dislocated unless you do the hard, short-term work of popping that baby back into place. So that's the goal of this. And the goal is clear enough so that the person may be saved in the day of the Lord. But delivering to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? What's that about? This makes more sense when we remember what the Bible says about Satan ruling over this world system. The world system that is set up in rebellion against God. So removing a person from church fellowship puts them back into the realm of Satan. And it's in this realm that this person's flesh will be destroyed. Again, other passages help us here. Flesh does not always refer to what's physical. It can also refer to the natural bent of sin that each one of us has. Each one of us has just this natural bent to serve ourselves rather than to serve God. This is what needs to be destroyed in this man for him to come back to Christ, his flesh. So Paul is saying, just a way to summarize it, this man needs a shock to the system. This man is in the room of the church. It's very warm in the And them not saying anything has warmed this man and lulled him to sleep over his sin. What he needs is to be put out in the cold so that he can wake up. So the action of removal, we think about it how it would work for the Corinthians back then in comparison to us. It would be way more dramatic for them than for us. Christians were a very, very small minority back then and in the city of Corinth. 
Just think about it. If we took this action, you know, God forbid, but if necessary, of removing a person from church fellowship, they could exit out our driveway, maybe go on their way home, and just think of how many church, church buildings they would see on their way home. We'll just go to the church down the street. That's okay. Well, there's a plug for churches cooperating as far as membership goes. But here, you just think about the situation in Corinth. This man, if he was removed from among them, it's not like he could go to the church down the street. No, the Corinthian Christians, they were it. And further, this man wouldn't be able to blend back into the rest of society all that easily. The Corinthians around them, the non-Christians, marked off Christians. They sidelined them. It would be difficult for this man to re-enter society. And so the hope is that he would not find a home in the world and that would drive him to repentance and drive him back to Christ and Christ's people. There's Paul's presentation. Just what's going on. How they reacted to it. What they needed to do instead. And a little bit of why. And I know, already we've covered a lot. He packs a ton into five verses. It's just the first point. Some basic applications we've covered so far, just as by way of review. We said that Christians should live differently, but we should also realize that we still sin. It's been a constant theme in Corinthians. We said all of us have a role to play in addressing the sin in our lives and the sin in the life of the church. We need to address it for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the church's witness. And to address sin effectively, we also said that we need to have meaningful, loving, and honest relationships in place. Without those, it's going to be really hard to do the command that Paul says here. Now, why should we be willing to take an action that we are so scared of in a verse 2? Why should we be willing to take the same action that Paul talks about here if the case arose? Now, if you had to pick an Old, te an Old Testament text to say why we should do this, which text would you pick? That's a big... I don't know if that's a Jeopardy question, but that's a, it's a big question. My hunch is that the Passover text probably wouldn't crack the top five for you. But this is where Paul goes as far as his foundation for why they should take this action. He goes to the Passover text, and we're going to see that it's an effective foundation. We'll pick back up in verse 6. He says... If they were so wise and impressive of Christians, then didn't they know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, to know what Paul's saying, you got to know a little bit of Bible background. And also, you got, a little, you got to know a little bit of bread background as well. I like bread. I try to avoid it because I like bread a little too much. A little leaven can have a big effect on an entire lump of bread. One commentator drills a little bit deeper here. He says, leaven to be distinguished from yeast was made by keeping back a piece of the previous week's dough, storing it in suitable conditions and adding juices to promote the process of fermentation, much like sourdough. This moldy dough could go bad and become a contaminant, which explains why it was a fitting symbol for the infectious power of evil. So why do they need to remove this man from among them who is having an affair with his stepmother? Because a little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. We know this personally. If you put up with a little sin in your life, it leads to more. If you put up with a little sin in your life, it leads to more. All right, let's get practical. Let's just take, for example, the kind of sin that this man committed and partook in. Let's talk about sexual sin. If you put up with a little sexual sin in your life, it will lead to more. Now I'm talking, I just, I don't want to be totally browbeating and bashing because God intends sex to be a good gift within his design. But if just like any kind of sin, if you put up with a little bit of it, it will lead to more of it. Saying yes to sexual sin or any sin for the second time is always easier than saying yes to it for the first time. But keep in mind though, that we know this personally, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. But the lump that Paul's talking about here wasn't this individual, wasn't this man. The lump that Paul was talking about here was the Corinthian church. So again, this man's sin did not just affect him personally. It affected the entire church. This tells us that our individual sin affects more than just us. It affects the people around us, namely our church. So friends, think about it. If we as a church tolerate clear displays of sin, then it will only serve to permit people to also sin. And soon our entire church is compromised. You know, the real life example I often use as far as the spreading of sin is when you're sitting down at dinner, maybe with family members, with people you're close to, and one person starts complaining about something. Maybe you're out to eat, and it's like it's just a clearly bad experience. And one person starts to complain, and then it's just a moment of silence. Are people going to join in? Maybe. Then one, person, one more person joins in, and then another person joins in. And pretty soon, the whole conversation is complaining. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Not just for the individual, but for the group. So in the rest of verses 6 and 7, Paul has more instructions. Paul wants them to get rid of the old leaven. Getting rid of leaven as a symbol of getting rid of sin in your life goes all the way back to the Passover meal in Exodus that we read earlier. Only unleavened bread was to be eaten and every crumb of leavened bread was to be removed for the Passover. And notice the reason that Paul gives them. They're to remove the uh, bad leaven that they may be a new lump as they, already are, as they really are unleavened. There's a lot of moving parts there. I don't know if anybody else is confused like me. How can they have leaven but still be unleavened people? Well, we get a clue on what Paul means when we go on. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For the Israelites in Egypt, the lamb was a substitute. They shed its blood, they put it on the doorposts, and God passed over the household. The judgment that they deserved symbolically fell on the lamb. But as the book of Hebrews tells us, the blood of lambs and goats could never atone for a, for a human sin. How can an animal stand in the place of a human? So this is why the Passover lamb points forward. It points to the ultimate Passover lamb of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, who stood in our place, whose blood was shed on the posts of the cross and took the judgment of God that we deserved for our sin so that God could pass over us. So how can leavened people be unleavened? How can sinful people be called sinless people? Because of Jesus. In Jesus, Christians are unleavened. When God sees us, he no longer sees sin because Jesus paid for it. But that doesn't mean we have stopped sinning. This is the dilemma and the struggle of the Christian life. That Jesus died for our sin, but we still partake in sin. This is the dilemma. But here is also the beauty of the Christian life. Why should we care about the sin in our lives? Why should we try to get rid of it? Especially if it's already paid for. Why should we care about sin in the church? Why should we care about how we live, what we love, what our attitude is, how we treat other people? We care about all this, not because we're on an endless pursuit to make ourselves clean or make ourselves unleavened in order to get a place with God. We care about this because we already are unleavened in Jesus. What Paul says here is similar to what he said before in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, live out who you already are in Christ. Live out who you already are in Christ. So if you believe that Jesus died taking the judgment for your sin, if you believe that, then what did you want to live in such a way that honors the one who did that for you? Wouldn't you want to walk away from the sin that your Savior died for? The sin that put your Savior on the cross. So as individual Christians, as churches, we live in a new way, leaving our old ways behind. We desire, as Paul says, to walk in sincerity and truth for the sake of the one who died for us, who is our Passover lamb, for the sake of the one who is now our Lord. A couple weeks ago, I went to Goodwill, uh, the one in Middleburg, just down on Pearl. Uh, I went to Goodwill to donate some clothes, some other stuff from around the house. And the lady who was at the donation center was very talkative. Uh, she told me about her plans for the weekend that she was going camping with her church. And she seemed really excited about it. So I asked, oh, uh, what church do you belong to? And she said, oh, I, I can't remember the specific one, but she said, uh, I belong to a Methodist church in Lakewood. And she said, oh, you, will, you would recognize it because we have rainbow doors on our building. And she said, I love this church. It's, it's an open and affirming church, meaning that, uh, she didn't say this, but it, that means that they affirm lifestyles of sexual sin beyond the boundaries and intention that God lays out in Scripture. Well, she's really excited about this. I wonder, that church... How does that practice square away with 1 Corinthians 5? Now, on the one hand, we should say, Jesus ate with sinners. People plunged into sinful lifestyles, just seemed to flock to Jesus. Pimps, prostitutes, tax collectors, they were comfortable hanging around Jesus. They went up to him. That is so often not the case with Jesus' followers. 
So along with this passage, we need to say that if your life is like a loaf of bread, then no matter how moldy and sour and unleavened that loaf is, Jesus can handle it. We need to say that. We need to say that it is not too late for you. That your place with God does not have to depend on your past. It does not have to depend on how well you can clean up your life. It can depend on what Jesus did in your place. So we need to say that we welcome sinners. But you read the life of Jesus. We should also say sinners should come to Jesus not to seek affirmation about their sin. They should come to Jesus in order to deal with their sin, to leave it behind and receive something better. Friends, ignoring, hiding our sin might be the easier option. Keeps us comfortable. It it doesn't force us to leave behind the stuff that we like. Ignoring or hiding our sin, it it allows us to put up a front to people and say everything is fine. But in the long run, ignoring and hiding our sin keeps us from Jesus. The only way you'll come to the one who makes us unleavened is to realize you are full of the leaven of sin. So let's get practical for a moment. People in this room, if you feel caught up in a sin in your life, especially of a kind that you would be tempted to hide or ignore, maybe something like sexual sin, if that is you, do not ignore it. Do not hide it. Bring it to the light. This is the day for a turn. This is the day for a new stance against this sin. This is a day to come to Jesus, maybe for the first time, or to come to Jesus again. This is a day where you ask for help. Now, this is what we're here for. This is what we're here for as Christians. Do not believe the lie. We are not here to condemn and put down. We are here to help and build up. I know that this is intimidating, but friend, it will be worth it. Do not ignore it. Do not hide it. Ignoring and hiding sin seems easier for us as an entire church. But in the long run, it will keep us from Jesus and smear the name of the one who died for us as our Passover lamb. So again, let's get practical for a moment. In the future of our church, there may come a time when we have a case of church discipline. There may come a time when it is clear we need to remove someone from membership. If and when that time comes, will you take the easy route of ignoring sin or will you take the hard but loving route of addressing it for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the purity of the church, and for the sake of the name of Christ? Now we've covered Paul's presentation, what was going on among them, how they reacted, what they should do. We've covered his foundation, why they should remove this man from the church, because the sin will spread in the church, and Jesus died for our sin, so we shouldn't be at peace with it. Last, we'll look at Paul's clarification. Paul indicates here, I believe it's in uh, verse 9, that he had wrote to them previously. He instructed them not to associate with sexually immoral people. So just as a sidebar, that means that 1 Corinthians is actually more like 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is more like 3 Corinthians. I know it's confusing. 
But here, it seems that the Corinthians misunderstood what Paul meant when he wrote to them. Because Paul goes on in verse 10 to tell them what he did not mean by his writing. He did not mean to stop associating with everybody who lives a sinful lifestyle. And he rattles off a few examples. If they had, avoid, if they had to avoid everybody like that, then they would have to become hermits and monks. As Paul says, if they had to avoid everybody like that, they'd have to remove themselves from the world. Friends, this, is, this would be the exact opposite of Jesus' mission that he gave to his people. He sends us not out of the world, but into the world. And saving us, Jesus didn't only die for our sins. He set us free from the rule of this world and has made us citizens of his kingdom. And now as citizens of his kingdom, he sends us as ambassadors back into the world to appeal to people who are still in it, to be reconciled to God through Christ. Christian, are you in the world, described here, are you in the world of the sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters? Are you in that world? I'm not asking about whether or not you hear of people doing those kinds of things. No, I'm asking whether you're actually around people who do those kinds of things. So many of us have functionally taken ourselves out of the world. The test I give myself from time to time is not foolproof. I, I get it. If I go weeks at a time without hearing the people around me use a curse word, that's a hint to me that I've taken myself out of the world. Playing baseball and softball reminds me of this. It, it's, just, it's helpful to have uh, habits and structures that get me around people who aren't Christians. Right? So pretty much everybody I play baseball and softball with is not a Christian. And they talk like it. They live like it, unashamedly. And even though it's hard to be around at times, it's good for me to be around those people. These people are made in the image of God. These people need Jesus as much as I need Jesus. And it's good for me, with God's help and by God's grace, to be a light in that situation. Don't take yourself out of the world. The Corinthians figured that Paul's instructions about not associating with sexually immoral people, this is just implausible, Paul. So we are going to toss it out. Dismiss it outright. Verse 11, though, Paul clarifies what he actually meant by what he said. He tells them not to associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, that is, bears the name of Jesus, but lives an open, unrepentant life of sin. Friends, this would give us warrant to say that just because you say you're a Christian does not mean you actually are a Christian. Your faith in Jesus should show up in a changed life that is for him and against sin. So Paul tells them not to associate with anyone who bears the name of Jesus but lives an open, unrepentant life of sin. He gets even more specific, does not turn down the heat. He says not even to eat with such a one. Man, what is up with that? Again, this seems really harsh. But again, some cultural background helps here. Back then, there was larger communication at play when you shared a meal together with another person. More than today, back then, sharing a meal was significant. 
sharing a meal. Basically, we could say, communicated that everything was okay. And by the way, the Lord's Supper would fall into this category of sharing a meal. The Lord's Supper for the Corinthian church would take, would take place in the context of a meal. So let's just talk about the man in question in 1 Corinthians 5. The man who was among them. The man who probably thought everything was okay. The man who, needed, who was having an ongoing affair with his stepmother. They need to remove this man from among them. But it's not that they shouldn't have a heart for him. It's not that they shouldn't even ever speak to him. It's that they should make it clear to this man that the way he was living did not befit one who bears the name of Jesus. They shouldn't call him brother. They shouldn't give him the Lord's Supper. They should call him to repent and come back to Christ. By doing this, the Corinthian Christians would make clear to this man, they would make clear to the outside world around them, that those who live in blatant sin cannot be allowed to appear to represent what it means to be a Christian. So Paul closes with his reasoning for his clarifying instructions. Verses 12 and 13. They don't need to pull away from associating with unbelievers who live sinful lifestyles because it's not their place to judge the sin in their lives. It's not that we don't evaluate or call others to repent. It's that it's not our job to condemn or discipline those outside of the church. It's not our job. It's God's job. But we do have a job. We do have a responsibility for the lives of those within the church. We have a say in how each other live. We just do. It's more than just showing up on Sunday mornings from 1030 to noon. For the sake of the state of this person's soul, this man in question, for the sake of the purity of the church, for the sake of the reputation of Christ's name, we need to guard against sin and be willing to purge it when needed. Again, verses 12 to 13, just look at them closely. Doesn't it seem the opposite of what most Christians practice? We'd rather spend time complaining and condemning the sin of the world around us than to address the sin within us. Y'all, let's reverse that order. Now, we've done a lot of heavy lifting. (laughs) Heavy lifting for a heavy subject. It's a good word to end on. When we talk about removing somebody from church because of unrepentant sin in their lives, we need to remember that it's not a vindictive action. It's a hopeful action an action that hopes for the person's repentance and restoration. We've covered that. We've covered many other biblical reasons that Paul offers here. The final word, though, that has stuck with me about this passage is having a humility and love that comes from Christ, our Passover lamb. If we're honest, we know the truth that each one of us deserves to be removed cast out of God's presence. Each one of us deserves that because of our rebellion against God, that the core of our life, of why we lived, was lived out of the flesh, living for ourselves, not for God. But instead of us being removed, cast out, Jesus was removed. 
cast out of God's presence. Instead of us being disciplined and condemned, Jesus was disciplined and condemned so that we could be brought in. So the life of guarding sin and aiming for purity has the foundation of grace. We do all of the stuff that we've just been talking about for the honor of the one who was banished so that we could be restored. That's what we want to uphold. That's what we want to bring people to or even bring people back to. And we want to do that even when it's hard, even when it takes difficult steps, like giving a shock to the system. We do that with the hope, the sure hope, that Jesus was banished so that we could be restored. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you and we believe your word is true. Sanctify us by your truth. Lord, by your spirit, working through what we've covered today, would you put it in our hearts to see sin how you see sin? Not to harbor it, not to hide it, but to address it. Give us the boldness and the trust in you to leave it behind, to ask for help. Father, we can't do this on our own. Keep us close to you. Keep us pure. Increase our purity. Lord, do this for the sake of us here. It is good for us to be away from sin and to be close to you. Do this for the sake of your church, that we may shine bright in a dark world. Do this, Lord, for the sake of yourself, your glory. We want to represent you well. We want to honor the one who saved us. Please help us with this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.